This is Office Hours from Westminster Seminary, California. Call the show now at 760-480-8477. Email us at officehours at wscal.edu. Now, Scott Clark. Jesus called the church to make disciples. But when we think about discipleship, we might think first about small groups and parachurch movements rather than about corporate worship in the visible church. Reverend Dr. John Payne is on campus this week to talk with our students and with some of us in the faculty about this very thing, about what Reformed and Presbyterian Christians call the means of grace and their relationship to discipleship in the context of the visible institutional church. Dr. Payne is senior pastor of Christ Church Presbyterian PCA in Charleston, South Carolina. Before that, he was a PCA pastor near Atlanta. He's a trustee of the Banner of Truth Trust. He studied at New College Edinburgh. He's executive coordinator of the Gospel Reformation Network and editor of and contributor to the Lectio Continua Expository Commentary Series and author of several books, including John Owen on the Lord's Supper and Rediscovering the Beauty of Reformed Worship for the 21st Century. John and his wife live in Mount Pleasant, South Carolina, and they have two children. Hi, John, and welcome back to Office Hours. Hey, Scott, great to be with you. We're glad to have you on campus again. It's always nice to have you. This is getting to be a regular thing, and that's a good thing. Yes, absolutely. I love being in the California sunshine this week. Of course, uh, having grown up in California, there's something about uh, coming back to my home state. It's real special. You don't sound like a Californian. <laughs> <laughs> You've been in South Carolina and Atlanta. I'm just Long being enough, contextual. Yeah. You yeah, know there me, you Scott. Go. Yeah, you're being culturally sensitive. Yes. So you're here to talk about discipleship. And as you heard in the introduction, when we think about discipleship, we might tend to think about uh, small groups or parachurch ministries, but we don't necessarily think about gathering on Sunday morning in the visible institutional church, about listening to a sermon, watching a baptism or receiving a baptism, or participating and receiving the Lord's Supper. Those are not things that we think of relative to discipleship. When you say discipleship to me, I first think of my little verse pack that I got as a young Christian from the Navigators with a bunch of verses that were sort of decontextualized and separated. So how did I get so confused about discipleship to think first about my verse pack instead of you handing me the elements of communion? Scott, I think that it would be true of many, perhaps most evangelical Christians, that if you ask them about what discipleship is, their first response would be, or the first thought would be meeting in a small group or meeting one-on-one, that uh, discipleship doesn't take place first and foremost in the sanctuary, but in the coffee shop with your mentor. And while we don't want to disparage those various avenues of discipleship uh, that we see happening organically in the midst of the church, even somewhat formally through, say, a youth pastor or some kind of a director of discipleship in a church that's seeking to mentor and encourage Christians that happens throughout the week, uh, we don't want to let any of those things eclipse the priority that we see in Scripture on worship as discipleship. As we see in Scripture, God meets with his people in a special way on the special day that he himself has ordained. And so as we understand the doctrine of God's omnipresence, we know he's everywhere, and yet he does make himself known and his presence known in an extraordinary way at various times and seasons. 
So there is such a thing as sacred time. The Lord himself ordained a day, the Sabbath, for God's people to gather into his presence and to stop working and recreating and so forth. And uh, we see this at the burning bush. Uh, God was at the burning bush before it started burning. And yet God manifested his presence there in a special way for a special reason. And he asked Moses to take off his sandals because it was holy ground because God had showed up. The same goes for the filling of the temple and the tabernacle in the Old Testament. Uh, How is it that God's presence was so manifest that the priests couldn't even enter? God's presence was there before that, but it was there in a special way after that. And so we believe in the Reformed heritage, according to our confessions, that the Sabbath is the day of the Lord. And on that day, he calls his people to gather together in his presence with his holy ministers to worship. And worship is first and foremost a receiving from God and then a responding to God with uh, praise, prayer, and devotion and obedience. And so it's in the context of sacred worship that disciples are made. Uh, Look at, Scott, uh, the Great Commission. Go forth into all the world and make disciples. And you say, well, how do we do that? Well, by baptizing in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and teaching all that I commanded you. What do we see the apostles doing for the rest of their ministry? They are doing just that. They're preaching the gospel. They are administering the sacraments. They are leading in prayer. They were committed to prayer and the ministry of the word at six. And they were planting churches, appointing elders, so that there would be lifelong disciples made within the visible church that would then produce mature disciples that would go do that elsewhere, plant churches and make disciples. So I think the making disciples conception has been one that's been limited and quite frankly, unbiblical if it's divorced from the ministry of the church. Or even competing with the church. I remember as a young evangelical trying to sort all this out. You know, we went to church, but I remember uh, when I first came into contact with some campus ministries, being given the very clear impression that church is good and you should go, but the real action is, you know, on campus in this meeting or that meeting or this discipleship meeting. So the fellow who first witnessed to me and led me to Christ, he discipled me and uh, used to check up on me, make sure I was having my quiet time and we would meet regularly. And in fact, truth be told, this is getting to be a long time. I've known this fellow. He's a wonderful man. When I go back home, I still call him up and we get together sometimes just to check up and to see one another. Mm. You know, this is the guy that led me to Christ. Mm. So that's a marvelous thing. But he was my discipler, right? And he gave me a little book, nine minutes and 59 seconds with God. And then you, when we matured, then you got the 2959, right? <laughs> but church always seemed to be somewhat second place. How did we come to think that way? Why was that? Even though we had back then, now this is in the mid-70s, we had Sunday morning, Sunday evening, Wednesday night. It wasn't like I wasn't in church, but still it had a kind of second place. Yes. I think as it concerns this, as well as other things that have emerged within the life of evangelicalism, which isn't always thoroughgoingly biblical, it stems out of a weakness in the church itself. And so I think as we think back to the 20th century, I was sharing with the students this morning that in Great Britain and in the United States in the mid-20th century, you had the mainline denominations giving in to liberalism. 
And of course, even before that, of course, it'd be late 19th century, early 20th century. But then in its place, because the mainline church was failing the people, as it were, they were coming up with parachurch organizations and organizations began to emerge like the Billy Graham Evangelistic Association, Campus Crusade for Christ, Christianity Today, Christian Student Union and the UK. Navigators, that was a big thing. And I remember filling out the workbooks, you know, Leroy Imes and uh, one of the first spiritual autobiographies. I read was uh, Dawson Trotman. Yes. And the cover art was made to look like Jaws, except it was Dawes. <laughs> and so we called these people spiritual giants. Yes. I remember sitting in the back of a postal Jeep. <laughs> Children, don't do this. <laughs> this is really unsafe. Sitting in the back of an old postal Jeep and driving from Lincoln, Nebraska to War Acres to meet with Gene War who was a navigator's mm. guy, and he was one of these giants. And someday the hope was to go to Glen Erie in Colorado Springs because that was like the Vatican. Yes. Right? Yes, yes. We have our pilgrimages too in evangelicalism, don't we? Um, you see these parachurch organizations and you give thanks for them. They do yeah, so amen. much good. You know, I think of Fellowship of Christian Athletes, the way it ministered to me in college as a new believer. And you think of Navigators and how it ministered to you. And, you know, it's partly because they had a high view of Scripture. They were zealous for evangelism. They were committed to biblical conversion and uh, lifelong spiritual growth and discipleship. And in these mainline liberal churches, you didn't have those emphases. And so there was this desire to form these organizations that were going to be serious about these things. So we praise the Lord for that. And yet we we need to remember that we're not supposed to replace God's plan. So it's time for us as the visible institutional church to say, you know what? Thank you very much for filling that gap, you know, in the interim when maybe we weren't doing some of what we needed to be doing for a variety of reasons. As you say, the main line and the time it took to separate from the main line in the case of the PCA and so forth. But now we as the visible church, as ministers, elders, deacons, parents, we need the visible church to be doing what in a sense, what these other organizations did in our place. Is that fair or close? I think we need to appreciate what these organizations have done, but recognize that they do not hold the mysteries of salvation, right? So they don't have an order and they're not a church. They're a parachurch. And so they don't handle and have the means of grace and the discipline of the church as we would see in scripture. And you think of the navigators, for instance, you mentioned them earlier. They're probably the most influential parachurch organization on discipleship. In fact, I think that they probably are sort of the reason why the formation of people's understanding about discipleship is the way it is today is because of the navigators, that one-on-one -on -one mentoring and small groups and so forth. Their slogan is life on life discipleship. And they've been around since 1933. Interesting though, I just doing a little research for an article I wrote on the subject and in their about section, it says nothing about the ministry of the church. And so while we praise the Lord for all the wonderful things the navigators have done to encourage people in Christ, to lead them to Christ, we need to recognize why so many evangelicals do not make Lord's Day worship a priority in the disciple-making process, both pastors and members. And so the first thing I think, Scott, it's important to remember is what the nature of worship is. And that's one of the big problems is people say things like, you know, well, we do our disciple making during the week, but the Lord's Day, or they don't even call it the Lord's Day, on Sunday, our worship service is an evangelistic crusade meeting, or it's a chance for our 
pastors, congregants, musicians, singers, dancers, and actors to show off their talents in the midst of the congregation. Or it's a kind of fellowship time where we talk about the programs of the church and encourage people to be involved in the church. So all of these emphases they're in worship services in modern evangelicalism. And so worship has no longer been understood or recognized as the workshop of the Holy Spirit, as the theater of Christian discipleship, where God is meeting with his people. That is biblical worship. God meeting with his people in the context of a sacred meeting, a kind of renewal of that glorious covenant of grace where God is reminding his people of his love and loyalty to them. And God's people are responding by grace through faith in Jesus Christ. And so God's word teaches something very different about discipleship, I think, than what is often conceived as the priority for discipleship. You're listening to Office Hours from Westminster Seminary, California. So, John, in Matthew 28, 18 through 20, reading from the, as it happens, the New American Standard, it just happens to be what's on my tablet in front of me. And Jesus came up and spoke to them, saying, All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And, lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. What does this passage mean, and how does this relate to what you've been on campus saying? When we think about the Great Commission, really the first thing we need to think of is often the last thing we think of. We often go straight to the command, to the mandate, while ignoring the promises. And the command to go and to make disciples, to baptize and to teach is sandwiched between two wonderful promises that Christ gives. Number one, that all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to him. And so when we go forth in mission to preach the gospel, make disciples, plant churches, appoint elders, and then do that again, we do so with great confidence, not in ourselves or in our own word, but in Christ and in his word. So then, of course, you have the last promise there, I will be with you always. And so even as I set out to plant Christ Church Presbyterian seven years ago, that was what encouraged me and compelled me to want to go through with this because on my own, I felt helpless and I'm not creative enough. I don't have enough ingenuity to do these things. And so going forth in mission, uh, we have these promises. And then you have, of course, the promises that are given to the apostles. And we know they're given to the apostles because we're encouraged to go make disciples and to baptize. Of course, your church member is not going to go around baptizing people. Uh, So the primary application of the Great Commission is for ordained elders to baptize and to teach all that I have commanded, which sounds like an expository preaching ministry to me, to preach Christ from the whole counsel of God. And so what is it that Christ is commanding the apostles to do and later teaching elders to do? It's to go forth, to preach, to make disciples, to baptize, and to teach all that Christ commanded, and to do so as we see modeled in the book of Acts by planting churches appointing elders to oversee and shepherd those churches, and then to raise up new missionaries that would then do the same thing. And it's within those churches then that we have this sacred context of Lord's Day worship where Christ himself, through his word and through his ordained servants, is informing, feeding, nourishing, comforting, and fortifying the faith of his people through the ordinary means of grace, through word, sacraments, and prayer, Acts 2.42. 
what were the people doing? What were they devoted to after Pentecost, immediately after Pentecost? They were devoted to the apostles' teaching, to the fellowship, to the breaking of bread, the Lord's Supper, and to prayer. What do we see all throughout the book of Acts? This very thing happening over and over and over again. And so I would argue that for us to conceive of discipleship apart from the faithful ministry of the ordinary means of grace in the context of a local church is to conceive of it wrongly. I know there are different aspects to it. And again, parachurch organizations do so much good. And I thank God regularly for those early days as a Christian when Fellowship of Christian Athletes encouraged me. However, I must say, that there was no encouragement in the midst of that, of being a faithful, committed member of a local church, and that that is really where Christ was feeding me through his means of grace. Yeah, where the action really is, is counterintuitive. Yes. Right? Because you look at the various parachurch groups and para means, you know, with, alongside. So you can look at those and you can see, well, there's all these exciting things going on. And what is the minister doing in the local church? He stands up and he leads a worship service and he preaches a sermon and the people sing psalms and they respond and then maybe at the end sometimes of sometimes hymns <laughs> <laughs> well if they must <laughs> so we won't <laughs> let's not get personal here <laughs> so and uh, that's the next episode yeah <laughs> <laughs> so the uh, the people uh, respond, and then at the end, the minister distributes, you know, calls forward the uh, believers and the members to participate in communion. And that none of that really looks like discipleship, but you're saying in the mysterious operation and ordination of Christ and his Holy Spirit, this is where people are being made into disciples. So it's not in the exciting parachurch group, but in what I just described. And then we could maybe add catechism classes and those sorts of things. So we have to really, you're saying, reorient ourselves yes. to what discipleship really is, what the church really is, that this is where God comes and meets with us in worship. You know, We are, as it were, at the foot of Zion, according to Hebrews. Christ is at the top of that mountain, surrounded by angels, and there we are, you know, participating in that. In a sense, what you're saying, if I'm hearing you correctly, is actually kind of revolutionary. The Great Commission... It's not something that's just carried out out there in Madagascar or Delhi, India, as we send people out. The Great Commission is something that happens right where we are as we are making disciples. And by the way, making lifelong disciples. And weeds grow up very quickly and sometimes are very big within two or three days. But you can pull them Did up. Did you go drive by my front yard? Is that, <laughs> is that what you're telling maybe, me? Maybe, maybe. <laughs> But you can pull up those weeds very easily. Uh, a storm may blow them over very easily, rip them up. But uh, a mighty oak tree, we have several beautiful twisty oak trees in our neighborhood in Charleston, and they are there to stay and have gone through many, many hurricanes. And a mature disciple is a disciple that's been under the faithful preaching and teaching and instruction of the Word of God, not just for months, but for years. So I think we need to conceive of discipleship as happening primarily within the context of a local church in all kinds of ways, but primarily in morning and evening worship on the Lord's Day, that God in His wisdom and by His grace has commanded the church to worship and that's not just us flexing our spiritual muscles and showing God how spiritual we are. It's coming as weak pilgrims who are walking through the wilderness, suffering, going through all kinds of trials in this life and heading to the promised land and needing 
a table spread in the wilderness, needing to feast upon Christ as a pilgrim, to be encouraged. And by the way, comforted. What a wonderful word, comfort. So we're really placing ourselves in the place where Christ has promised to come and to bless us. Yes, he's always going to work through his word, but there's something special and mysterious and glorious about the context of the local church where the mysteries of salvation are being administered. And you just don't get that at the midweek FCA meeting where they're having skits and they're trying to make newcomers feel welcome and and at ease. And you've got the speaker who's telling jokes. And there may be some good things happening in the midst of that. Maybe Tom Osborne will be there. Right. Coach Tom Osborne, right? Major figure in FCA for decades and decades. That's Nebraska. Yes. Okay. See, I'm a Clemson <laughs> man. I, I have to think hard about you, Tom Osborne. <laughs> See, look, it's right here. There's, there's do, the... do they still have a football team, Scott? Oh, I, I'm you're killing I... me. You're <laughs> killing me. Just wait. So, okay. And so, the, you know. It's good to be on top, Scott. <laughs> Go Tigers. Just wait. So these uh, groups are attractive, but the promises of Christ are not attached to them. And so it is significant that the Great Commission mentions, our Lord Jesus mentioned baptism. This is not something that we do. This is something that is done to us and where we're initiated outwardly into the visible covenant community, enrolled into that community and where we're given a name. Right. At least traditionally, you were given your Christian name. You have your last name, your surname, your family name, so that uh, in some places and in some generations, if you ask, what is your name? They're asking, what's your last name? And then uh, they might say, what's your Christian name? And that's your baptismal name. And whether you were named at your baptism or not, you are given a name in baptism, and that's Christian. Not that baptism confers new life upon you, but that you're enrolled into the visible covenant community. Mm. And you're a part of that now, and a name is on you, and your identity, Mm. outwardly at Mm. least, is changed. And then we're praying that the Holy Spirit's going to work through the means of grace, the preaching of the gospel, through the prayers that are offered, through the Lord's Supper and the discipleship that occurs in the context to bring that baptized person to new life and true faith. Yes, and of course, you brought up our children, and this is a very important part of this conversation, isn't it? Because as I think of the children at Christ Church Presbyterian, we have so many little ones running around after the services and are in our services because our nurseries are only for uh, five and under, and so We have lots of children in our services, and they are growing up, going to morning and evening worship. They're hearing the word read and preached. They're seeing many, many baptisms taking place. And they're hearing more than mom and dad think they are, right? While they're wiggling around, and I say this because I've been watching this now for you know more than 40 years, that children hear more than you think they hear. So uh, you don't think they're paying attention. And then Wednesday, while they're messing around with their toys, you hear them singing, humming Psalm 23, right? Or saying the Apostles' Creed. And then suddenly you realize, oh, my lands. Sure. That child isn't just squirming. They're also picking up things. There's no question. And the model of seeing mom and dad worshiping the Lord and listening to the word and being told to listen to the word, these things are formative in their lives. And it's incredible. On Sunday afternoons, I do uh, catechism kids and we have... You and John Calvin. (laughs) Truly, that's exactly what Calvin did. So bless you, It's one of my favorite parts of the week. And so we'll have Sunday school, Sunday morning, and then morning worship. Afternoon, we usually have people 
our home. And then at 4.30, I go over to the church and uh, have about a dozen kids sitting in front of me. Right now, we're walking through the Heidelberg Catechism. We've already walked through the Westminster Shorter Catechism a couple of times. And then, of course, after that, we'll have evening worship. But before we start the Catechism Kids, I will often ask them to talk with me about my sermon from the morning. And Scott, it brings tears to my eyes how detailed of answers that they get back. These are seven and eight-year-olds, nine-year-olds that are answering specific questions about the text, about points of application that I made. It's quite extraordinary. And it's just a reminder that we are making disciples of them. We don't see them as projects or sort of pagans to evangelize. We see them as covenant children to nurture and to disciple. And it's not until or if they decide to throw off the promises of God and to leave the church that we ever discount them as a disciple of Jesus Christ. And that's the charitable approach that we have to our children that grow up in the life of the church as baptized covenant children. So we need to recover a full-orbed Reformed and Presbyterian notion of what discipleship actually is. Yes. And, uh, that includes our children, our families, and much more than maybe we've been led to think. You're listening to Office Hours, and we're talking to the Reverend Dr. John Payne about discipleship, about the church, and about how that connects to worship and things like baptism and the Lord's Supper. When we come back after this break, I've got uh, some questions for John. So stay tuned. I never dreamed that there would ever be a crisis on the doctrine of justification among evangelicals since that's what's defined our faith historically. All evangelicals have embraced historically the doctrine of justification by faith alone until now. R.C. Sproul for Westminster Seminary, California. This is the first time in history that I know of professing evangelicals have negotiated that doctrine by entering into unholy alliances with people who categorically rejected. But that's one of the things I love about Westminster Seminary. This is one of the few seminaries in this country that is acutely conscious of this crisis and is zealous to maintain the central importance and essential truth of justification by faith alone. People are always asking me where to go. My favorite seminary in the United States, in the whole United States, is Westminster. Westminster Seminary, California. WSCAL.edu. 888 480 8474 Westminster Seminary, California for Christ, His Gospel, and His Church. Well, in all that you're saying, of course, the Sabbath is central because, as you say, there's sacred time, time set apart by the Lord, a whole day in which we give ourselves over to these things, but also the visible institutional church is essential to this. And you are a teaching elder in the PCA, and we're coming up now, as you and I are sitting here, it's February 24, I think. Our 25, uh, 2020, and we're starting to think about synod meetings, our general assembly meetings that are coming up. And um, we want to leave a church for our children and grandchildren that is faithful to the word and a place where they can continue to practice discipleship. So what are some of the issues that you're facing? For example, I know you are a minister or a teaching elder in the Low Country Presbytery. Correct. In the, uh, in the PCA, and your presbytery sent an overture to the General Assembly asking the GA of the PCA to amend the Book of Church Order. I'm going to boil this down so you can correct me if I'm not getting this quite right. To refuse ordination to men who self-identify as gay or homosexual. Am I getting that Right. So the specific language is men who self-identify as gay Christian, 
same-sex attracted Christian and or homosexual Christian shall be deemed unfit for ordination in the Presbyterian Church in America. And of course, we have several whereas statements of rationale, and this did originate in our session as a church, and we felt we needed to put this forward because a lot of the influence of what we call revoice doctrine in the life of the PCA and where this kind of language of placing a moniker which relates to a sin on the word Christian is not only unbiblical, but profoundly unwise as it comes to our own witness in the world. It seems to me, and again, I could be wrong, but it seems to me that uh, it's akin to saying I'm a klepto-Christian. I have this disposition to theft, and this is now part of my identity, and I'm going to qualify my Christianity by my proclivity to this particular sin. Now, you say revoice, and the listener may or may not know what this, may have vaguely heard something about a conference. Can you walk us through quickly... I know that's not very fair, but walk us through what Revoice is. What is it? What does it stand for? And why is it necessary? Why did your session feel it was necessary to uh, ask the body to clarify the book of church order? Yeah, so the mission and the vision of Revoice is from their website, quote, to support and encourage gay, lesbian, bisexual, and other same-sex attracted Christians, as well as those who love them, so that all in the church might be empowered to live in gospel unity while observing the historic Christian doctrine of marriage and sexuality. And I want to begin by making it clear that we recognize how some churches, not all churches, as some sort of say, but uh, some churches have really failed to faithfully minister to those who are struggling with same-sex attraction, that there's been a kind of immediate rejection, an unwillingness to be patient and to minister to men and women struggling with same-sex attraction. And so in many ways, there's been a real failure on the part of the church over the decades to minister to those struggling with this. That being said, the answer is not revoice and what they are putting forward. And I'm not saying that everything that they say is terrible or wrong. I'm just saying that a lot of what they are saying is unbiblical as it's related to the doctrine of sanctification, also this identity language that they are using, which again, not only is unbiblical, but also very unwise to place a sin moniker in front of Christian. As you said before, you used the example. I think it's an appropriate one. In fact, I've shared with others It would be intolerable in the PCA, and it should be, for someone to call themselves a racist Christian, that while they do not strike out against those of other ethnicities than themselves, that they still wake up every day with this, and so they want to identify with this sin in their life so that others who identify with this sin can come together and minister to each other. But not to call each other to repentance, because the conception seems to be that this is an immutable characteristic, and by immutable, I mean it cannot be changed, so there's an assumption there, and I can never be other than I am, I never will be other than I am, so I'm simply going to not act on my impulses, but I'm not going to say in the side B revoice ideology, I'm not going to say that my inclination, that is that same sex attraction, SSA, not going to say that sin per se. And you want to say what? That that inclination is sin. There's a clear difference of opinion. This is a difference between reformed theology and Roman Catholic theology as it concerns desire 
or inclination. And they're wanting to say that you do have unwanted homosexual desires and that those are not sinful unless acted on. And that there's a kind of attraction and aesthetic that you can have and it not be sinful. But Jesus says if you look at a woman with the intention of lusting, right, you're not acting on it, but you've looked at her with the intention of lusting, you've already committed adultery. Right? If you say to someone, you fool, or murdered them in your heart, you're already a murderer. So how does that work? The classical way of putting this is concupiscence. Yes. Right? Yes. Well, they try to make a distinction between inclination and attraction. Well, they, actually, they say attraction is not a sin, but to have lust is sin. And that attraction really is linked up with inclination, as it were. But as was brought out in a very helpful study report, the Central Carolina study report on Revoice 2018, which I'll commend to your listeners, it's fantastic. I think you can access that online. It helpfully draws out the idea that you would never say that you were attracted to your children. You would say they were handsome or they were beautiful or something like that, but you wouldn't say, I'm attracted to my child. No, not, that not would be in, strange. In, well, that would be illegal. It would be illegal. And I would call the police and have you arrested. Yes, and you wouldn't say, as a pastor, you were attracted to one of the youth. <laughs> no, not right? unless you want me to call the police and have you arrested Right, again. <laughs> and so the, the idea, and, and actually Kevin DeYoung brings this out very helpfully in his lecture that he gave at the GRN conference last year, A Time to Stand, which again, I'll recommend to your listeners. We have all these videos are on our uh, website, gospelreformation.net. Wonderful lectures from Ligon Duncan, Al Mohler, Kevin DeYoung, Dave Garner, which deal with this revoice doctrine in a way that's very pastoral, but also biblical. But I think that's that's really where it comes in is the revoice doctrine is trying to make sense of these feelings and emotions and desires that they have. And they're trying to make a distinction between the phenomenological attraction and desire and the ontological of being a gay person. So when they talk about, this is what they say, and it's important that those who disagree with revoice are clear about what it is they are teaching. And they're teaching that when they talk about gay Christianity, that they're using that language in order to communicate the struggle that they have so that others can recognize that too and come together and encourage one another because they do say that they believe only in biblical marriage and that sex should only be between a man and a woman in the context of biblical marriage. And so there's that part and we applaud that, that that's the focus. So many are just throwing their hands in the air and saying, I'm going to be a full-fledged side A gay Christian. God approves of all of this. And, and this group is not doing that. We're thankful for that. However, it is unbiblical unwise and unhelpful to use this language gay Christian because it not only is confusing to Christians themselves, I mean, Rosaria Butterfield herself said, I'm glad I became a Christian in 1998 and not 2016. Yeah, it's interesting that people who have, so if the listener doesn't know, Rosaria is a wife of a Reformed Presbyterian minister and an outspoken former lesbian. And um, in another context, I've helped host Rosaria for a conference here in Escondido last summer where she gave some terrific talks. And the listener might want to look for those online. And she's written three books, very helpful books, highly recommend all of them. And she takes a very different point of view. And I couldn't help but notice as I looked through the Revoice materials and other Side B materials that her story and stories like hers are completely absent and, you know, just omitted 
which is odd when somebody's able to give a testimony of grace that, you know, for whatever reason, I got involved in this lifestyle. And we have to admit that um, my research tells me that a high percentage, a significant percentage of those who fall into SSA or who identify as LGBTQ, etc., are the product of or affected by trauma of some kind, childhood trauma, mm-hmm. sexual abuse. Pornography, pornography, those kinds of things all have a tremendous effect, which makes me doubt the claim that it's an immutable characteristic. But here we have Rosaria and others who, by the grace of God, are no longer identifying that way and no longer living that lifestyle and not seeking affirmation of their inclination, even if they're not acting on it. When a Christian is in union with Christ, of course, every Christian is in union with Christ. And to be in union with Christ means that no longer do we identify with our sin. We die to sin. As Rosaria said somewhere, we put a fresh nail in our sin every day. We give it no harbor. In fact, earlier, Scott, I was running this morning out near my hotel, and I noticed there was this really colorful tent over this house. I was like, oh, is a circus going on over there? What is that? And it was, of course, a bug tent, uh, exterminator tent. And they're trying to kill probably termites and other kinds of things. But my guess is no bug will have safe harbor under that tent. And, you know, when you are brought into union with Christ, no sin has safe harbor. We don't identify with any sin. We don't want to allow any sin to have safe harbor in our lives. And this whole gay Christian nomenclature where people are gathering together in groups and publicly self-identifying as gay is extremely unhelpful. It's confusing, I think, to people who are struggling with same-sex attraction and trying to work things out in their sanctification. Is this something I'll ever be delivered from, they might think? And uh, they're being told no by those like uh, Nate Collins and others that this is who you are. And we say, no, this isn't who you are. You're listening to Office Hours from Westminster Seminary, California. You had a minister stand up on the floor of GA, not to put too fine a point on it, last spring who put this issue, quite apart from his congregation hosting the Revoice conferences, but on the floor of GA, basically announcing, and then prior to that, publishing an article in Christianity Today, announcing that uh, he was a gay Christian, and apparently now writing a book, from what I understand, making this case. So this isn't just a theoretical thing. It's not somewhere out there. This is right before you, ecclesiastically, which is why your presbytery and others are seeking to address this ecclesiastically. Yes, and there are two presbyteries that are asking for original jurisdiction over the discipline case, and these things will be taken up at General Assembly, and these things are huge. If we're going to say, what's the major thing that has taken down denominations in the past 15, 20 years? It's this issue. It's the issue of human sexuality. So there are many of us who are very concerned about the direction, the trends of the Revoice Doctrine, and there are organizations like Harvest USA that are doing great work to minister in a way that's orthodox and biblical, and uh, we praise the Lord for that. And again, we're not saying that everything Revoice says is terrible, but it's important, I think, to recognize what the Bible says about sanctification, that we are to put off the old man and to put on the new. We are to put to death the deeds of the flesh. We are to put on Christ. As Paul lists these sins, he says, uh, and such were some of you. This is no longer who you are. And so I understand the desire, particularly those who have not been treated well in churches and there's loneliness there, there's shame, there's struggle. And, you know, I, I don't totally understand that. I do 
sympathize with wanting to hear teaching on this and to understand how they are supposed to be now as someone who's struggling with these things and who may struggle with these desires the rest of their lives. The church does need to be a place where people can say, you know, come to uh, the ministers, uh, teaching elders, ruling elders and say, uh, brothers and sisters and say, I am a sinner and I am struggling with this particular sin and I need your help. I need your counsel. I need your prayers. And we need to be able to say that so that we can face sin squarely, call it what it is, receive grace, forgiveness, renewal, encouragement, a renewed sense of the favor and approval of God. How important is that for people who are really struggling with these deeply ingrained patterns of sin and that may be rooted in trauma and childhood and all of that? From a pastoral counseling point of view, really hard to unwind. It is. And uh, we need to remind our members and those struggling with these things, that we are a new creation in Christ Jesus. The old is gone. The new has come. A work of sanctification has begun in our lives. And that means that we are being more and more conformed unto the image of Christ. How do we become more and more conformed into the image of Christ, Romans chapter 8, if we are holding on to gayness or theft or whatever or whatever describing it as an immutable characteristic i mentioned earlier rosaria butterfield saying i'm glad i was converted in 1998 not in 2016 she said because i'm not quite sure where i'd be today if that had been so because the pastor that you had mentioned earlier had called her to repentance and to faith in jesus christ and that in christ she's a new creation in union with christ she no longer identifies with sin no longer is she under the power or the penalty of sin and so while she still may perhaps struggle with some of these things she is as she says putting a fresh nail in it every day she's dying to sin daily. She's mortifying this sin and she has seen growth and encouragement in that. Scott, over the last few months, I've had three different individuals who have been present when I've spoken on these issues or taught on these issues, not only in Charleston, but elsewhere, come to me privately and say, Pastor, thank you so much for what you've said, because I was really confused about some of the things that Revoice is saying. And what you're saying is biblical and it makes sense and you need to keep saying this. And so it's not just me, of course, it's the Central Carolina Presbytery and their wonderful report. It's wonderful articles and messages online through the Gospel Reformation Network and uh, Rosaria Butterfield and others that are trying to help people recognize that while we want to deal with this pastorally, we don't want to negotiate the truth while we are doing so. To connect what we've been discussing with where we started, and that is the church is the place, you say, the theater of discipleship. I'm looking here at Romans 7, where traditionally we've understood Paul to be speaking as a Christian about his struggle with sin, and uh, very honestly and realistically, but he makes a wonderful distinction between sin-doing things and I. So that sin is one thing, and I, the new I in Christ, even though I'm still struggling, sin is one thing, I, that's another thing. In verse 16, so Romans seven sixteen. but if I do the very thing I do not want to do, I agree with the law, that the law is good. So now, no longer am I the one doing it, but sin which dwells in me. For I know that nothing good dwells in me that is in my flesh. For the willing is present in me, but the doing of the good is not. For the good that I want, I do not do, but I practice the very evil I do not want. This is actually strangely comforting in a way. It it sounds, you know, if you take it superficially, it can sound discouraging, but just keep going through the passage. I am no longer the one doing it, but sin which dwells Mm. in me. And that is a thing, as you say, that can be 
crucified. We used to talk about mortification, right? Heidelberg 88, 89, 90 says there are two parts of the Christian life, the putting to death of the old man, the making alive of the new. So a same-sex attraction, that needs to be mortified. A desire to steal, you know, an attraction to theft needs to be mortified. Whatever it is, a murderous desire, that needs to be mortified. And we can, you're telling us, do that mortification. The Spirit is at work in us by virtue of our union with Christ. He is putting to death those things in us. Am I close? Yes. Sin no longer reigns in us. We've been set free from the bondage of sin, but sin still remains in us. And I think that's what you're getting at. And uh, there's interestingly and ironically, there's a kind of perfectionism within the Revoice Doctrine. They're basically saying, if I can't change 100% my orientation, so-called orientation language, if I can't change that 100%, then I must not be able to change. And that's just not true. And so we would say, get away from this idea that if you don't have complete change in your sexual orientation, that language can be taken wrongly. I understand that. But that somehow the gospel is powerless to change you. Don't lose heart. Don't lose heart. Our sins are being mortified. That means we have to wake up and strangle them every day. You know, look how Owen uses um, these wonderful metaphors in his sin and temptation and mortification of sin. You know, you need to wake up every day and strangle and beat down your sin. And that's a part of the Christian life. It's being a soldier of Jesus Christ. It's fighting against the not only the enemy of the world and the devil, but also the flesh. And know that sin has, in principle, been defeated. And you are, as you keep saying, united to Christ. So don't lose heart. Don't think that it will never be any different or any better, or that you're not making any progress, or that Christ isn't sanctifying you. You may not see it in any given moment, but by faith, we accept that we are being sanctified, and that at some point, it will be evident that, in fact, we really were being sanctified, even though in the midst of the struggle— Right? When you're on the battlefield, you don't have necessarily a global view of everything. And you might be in a battle that's going very badly. But the war is won, right? The war is won or you're winning the war more globally. But in any particular conflict, you know, it, it may be very bloody. It may be very ugly. But Christ has won and uh, he's not going to let go of you. So if you're struggling with same-sex attraction, keep struggling, right? Yes. Don't just roll over and say, well, this is an immutable characteristic. And um, don't say this is who I am. No, well, who you are is Christian. Yes. Right? If you're a baptized person, then the name of Christ has been put on you. Yes. And if you've trusted him, you belong to him. He belongs to you, and he's not going to let go of you. And let's not make this sin the sort of be-all and end-all end all sin. All Christians are struggling against indwelling sin. And so join the crowd, as it were, <laughs> of... Your sins aren't special. Right. And that's sometimes what you get a sense of, is that this sin is to be made a lot of, and we're actually going to rejoice in queer culture because the sinfulness of homosexuality has actually made a culture that we can redeem. And you hear all this language in the Revoice Doctrine, and again, not only is it unbiblical and unhelpful, because it's a kind of staying settled in an identity that needs to be forsaken. Needs to be mortified. It needs to be mortified. We don't want to be settled in any kind of identity except Christian. in Christ. Yeah. Right. Christian is a sufficient identity. We don't need to qualify that. We do not. Right? Klepto-Christian or whatever, right? The qualifiers are problematic in that respect, especially when the qualifiers are at best dubious and 
at worst, uh, contrary to the work. Yes, yes, absolutely. Well, John, it's been great to have you on campus. I know the students love hearing from you, and uh, it's always good to sort of hash through these issues. And we're grateful for the faithfulness that uh, your session has shown, and we're looking forward to good things coming out of the various overtures. And I know the listener will join me in praying for the PCA as you guys face these tough issues. Yes, thank you, Scott. Yes, we want so much uh, to approach these things in a pastoral way. It's a hard conversation to have, but I'm glad we're having it in the PCA. I hope and pray that uh, the Lord will uh, meet us in Birmingham, Alabama this next June uh, as we try to hash these things out as a denomination. So all prayers are appreciated. Thanks for listening to Office Hours from Westminster Seminary, California. Don't miss an episode. Subscribe now to Office Hours in iTunes. Find all the shows at wscal.edu slash office hours. Copyright Westminster Seminary, California. All rights reserved.